This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. Today, we'll hear from one of just two female master cheesemakers here in Wisconsin. But we'll start with Hispanic Heritage Month, which celebrates the histories, cultures, and contributions of people whose ancestors came from Spain, Mexico, the Caribbean, and Central and South America. WUWM is celebrating the rich cultural diversity of Milwaukee's Hispanic and Latino people during Hispanic Heritage Month. That includes a conversation between WUWM race and ethnicity reporter Taryn Powell and Afro-Latina Milwaukee resident Joanne Marie Luciano Vargas. She was born and raised in Ponce, Puerto Rico, and came to Milwaukee at the age of 13 after a hurricane destroyed her family's home. Vargas talks with Taryn about that transition from Puerto Rico to Milwaukee. It was indeed very scary. A lot of times we think because Puerto Ricans have dual citizenship, Puerto Rico has a commonwealth. They have the citizenship of Puerto Rico and the citizenship of the United States. And most people think, oh, that's not really migrating from a new place because you're a U.S. citizen. But we're starting a whole life brand new in a different country where they speak a different language, different weather, different everything. So we don't know what's going to happen. So we just came in in hopes that we would be able to succeed. How did you find community in Milwaukee? Well, first came the question of my identity and who I was. I came in, and MPS threw me, my brother and sisters, in different schools because mm-hmm. it was, you know, whatever was open and available. So we were all spread in different places. The English that is taught in Puerto Rico is very minimal. Mm-hmm. So I understand very much when I came in, and I was put in a monolingual school. Being in a monolingual school, most of the kids are either going to be black or white. So then you try to see and figure out, Ooh, who's my people? Where do I fit in? Who can I try to communicate with? So the question of race or ethnicity or color wasn't brought upon me or wasn't even of a concern to me until I got here. Mm-hmm. Because I look at myself and I'm like, you know, I got a little bit of color. You know, I'm, I'm golden in here. But I'm not white. But I'm not black. Or am I black? Because I look at my mom. And she's black. So am I black? But then my dad. You know, he's he's pretty fair-skinned. I don't know where I stand. Mm-hmm. I try to communicate with the white girls. I try to um, listen to them the way that they speak. I try to see the things that they did. And unfortunately, they were just making fun of me. <laughs> they were saying things to me. They were saying words that were ugly about me, but I didn't understand because of that language barrier. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until... Uh, the black girls were the ones who really embraced me, and they said, you shouldn't be talking to those people because they don't care about y'all. Mm. And it was the y'all that I got to understand. It was it, not just me. They didn't care about people that were not of their same race or ethnicity. Mm. Um, we started communicating very minimal, you know, just small words here and there, exchanging Spanish words for English words. Um, they would see the way that I came uh, to school. My mom did my hair in head wraps. It's normal and it's traditional from, from Puerto Rico and in braids. So they were like, so then in Puerto Rico, people do braids? In Puerto Rico, people do headbands and head wraps? Yes, we do. Um, 
So I guess that is something that they saw. It was very much meter in their culture mm-hmm. and what they also have and embrace in their community. And they felt that I belonged there too. What does identifying as Afro-Latino mean to you? It's understanding who I am and where I come from. A lot of times we tend to just look at the physical and say, I think I am pretty white passing. Mm -hmm. So maybe when I look at those different boxes that check the ethnicity, I should be putting white. Or maybe I'll make it up as it goes, put Pacific Islander, because Mm -hmm. I don't see one that truly identifies to me. But when I look at my mother and I look at my family and I see their traditions, the things that they hold dear to their heart, the color of their skin, and the way that I carry myself, I understand that my identity is an African-centric identity. I guess along with that, figuring out what boxes to check, I was reading just like a little bit of data about, you know, how many folks identify as Afro-Latino in the U.S. and whether it's just... Latino versus Hispanic, was there ever a challenge in picking one like, okay, just Latino or Hispanic or like <laughs> so many labels right, that there's were a forced lot of to labels. choose? <laughs> That's for sure. Um, I did struggle with that. It wasn't until I had the education and the knowledge and the understanding of what it is that I needed to put in those boxes because mm. I didn't know. So when it comes to me, a Puerto Rican woman, and we are in the Caribbean, Everyone who is in the Caribbean is considered black. It's Mm -hmm. not depending on the color of their skin, but rather because of the, well, what happened with um, the diaspora and those people who were forced into slavery from West Africa and moved to the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. Um, Even the lightest of shade of Puerto Rican, if you look at their mother or their cousin or their aunt or grandma or grandpa, you're going to find somebody that is dark as night. Mm. Uh, it is part of what happened to us. Um, you have to understand that the land was native. Christopher Columbus didn't come and discover us. We was there. <laughs> we was thriving and we was happy. Mm. They forced these people from West Africa to come to our land, forced into slavery, intermixed with the natives, evidently end up being forced to also intermix with Spaniards that were mm-hmm. taking over the land. And the the reasoning was to purify the race, to ensure that there was a extinction of Native people and of Black people. Mm-hmm. So they continue to intermix and will take advantage of the women of the land to ensure that the offspring continue to get lighter and lighter and lighter. Mm-hmm. But what happens with genetics in Puerto Rico is just you don't know the color that the child is going to come out. <laughs> that is what happens. I mean, if you look at a Puerto Rican family, you're going to be like, y'all adopted? <laughs> <laughs> you have a redhead with curly, coarse hair, but then they light skin. And then you have another person, same part of the same family. Mm-hmm. Very, very dark skin, but the hair is wavy. It don't make sense. But I mean, out of the darkest of ashes, beauty ended up arising. Mm -hmm. And we're able to see the beauty on it all. Absolutely. What does this month-long recognition mean to you? This recognition is specifically of those who are 
of Spanish-speaking native tongue who come from Central America, the Caribbean, and from South America. It is the time of the month that these people who are no longer in their native homes are able to talk, speak, and be vocal and expressive about where they come from originally or where their ancestors came from before they ended up being in this new land called the U.S. And so how does that pride come out for you during Hispanic Heritage Month? As of right now, I am in an all-time busy when it comes to my business. I create artisan jewelry that mostly is reflecting on self-identity and ethnicity. The most popular thing that I am creating are earrings with the flags of each person's land. So there's people that are ordering flags that you don't see out there. Of course, I, I'm sorry, but we we do be taking over a lot. Puerto Ricans <laughs> be putting their flag everywhere. We put it on our cars, on our houses, on our shoes, on our shirt, everywhere. But understand that the reason why is because once upon a time our flag was banned. Mm. So when our flag was banned during the gag law, the women were the ones who really were revolutionary. They would create the flags and they'll stitch it inside uniform skirts put it inside the shoes to ensure that the flag stayed alive and people knew. So yes, to be able to create something that is so meaningful to people, um, that they could be able to carry around with pride anywhere that they are. And people can say, oh, I know that flag. It's from Nicaragua. It's from Honduras. It is from Colombia. And for them to be able to recognize that person beyond from what you are able to see on the outside, because you just never know. You could look at somebody yeah. and you're like, I don't know what they are, who they are, where mm. they come from. But then to be able to have that symbol already with them gives them pride, gives them a sense of joy and happiness yeah. and for other people to be able to see them. Where do you see like Afro-Latino specifically inclusion in these Hispanic Heritage Month celebrations? Thankfully, I'm seeing it a lot and in particular when it comes to the arts. We have incredible people that have decided to put themselves out there, mm. be completely open uh, about themselves and everything that they stand for in their art, whether their medium is painting, drawing, sculptures, photography, poetry. And then we have the artists that put their whole out on the open with their body, by dancing, by drumming, by singing. Um, there's many different communities here in the city that are keeping traditions alive and that are continuing to carry up everything that is so dear to us. Joanne Marie Luciano Vargas is a Milwaukee resident who spoke about her experience growing up in Milwaukee as an Afro-Latina with WUWM's race and ethnicity reporter, Taryn Powell. Did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Just search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcast to download and listen to us on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. Coming up later in the show, we'll hear some new local music in the Milwaukee Music Roundup. But first, we'll learn more about the craft of cheesemaking from one of the only two women master cheesemakers who's right here in Plymouth, Wisconsin. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.
You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Cheese. We love it here in Wisconsin. And the numbers back this fact up. If Wisconsin was a country, we would rank fourth in the world in cheese production, right behind the rest of the United States, Germany, and France. Wisconsin also has the only cheesemaker program outside of Europe, and of the master cheesemakers, there are only two women. Pam Hodgson of Sartori Cheese in Plymouth, Wisconsin, is one of them. Hodgson's family have been farmers in the area since the 1840s, and the legacy of cheesemaking goes back to her grandfather. Hodgson will be part of the Art of Cheese Festival this weekend, and ahead of that, she joined me to share how one job at a local cheese plant led her to the rank of master cheesemaker. My pathway to cheesemaking, it does have a couple twists and turns. Growing up, I wanted to be a dairy farmer like my parents. Uh, It did turn out that my maternal grandfather was a very accomplished cheesemaker, but when I was growing up, I knew him as grandpa. He was already retired. So my, my journey to become a dairy farmer took me to University of Wisconsin-Madison, where I studied cows. Great experience. And early on in my husband and I, uh, our farming career, we were just starting out. We needed a little bit more money to fuel the dream. So there was an opening at a cheese plant in the area for a quality assurance supervisor. I took the job, and uh, once I was in the plant, I just fell in love with cheese making. Uh, I think it, it's a little bit of a joke on our family in that I had no intention of becoming a cheesemaker, but like my maternal grandfather, it turned out to be a fantastic career for me. What were some of the things that you were immediately drawn to when you took that first job? I loved working in the cheese plant when I started in 1991 because, one, there's always something going on. We ran milk around the clock, and when we weren't making cheese, we were cleaning the equipment that we use. So there was always something going on. I liked the satisfaction of at the end of the day, we had a cooler full of cheese that we had made. We could see the the results of our hard work. And then cheese making is challenging. Um, It's physically challenging. It, it, It can be very hard work depending on what job you're doing. It challenges a person intellectually. We always have to, as cheese makers, we have to listen to the process and make adjustments to the process based on what the milk is doing or what the curd is doing. It's not the same every day because our major component milk changes a little bit every day seasonally depending on stage of lactation, environment, what cows are being fed. So there's always something to challenge a person. And then all of my cheese making experiences have been in, in plants where it was a team working together. And I really thrive and enjoy that. I enjoy working with people and seeing people develop and become more accomplished cheesemakers or more accomplished in whatever it is they want to do. And the practice of cheesemaking itself, it's referred to as an art typically, but for you it's both an art and a science and not one or the other, right? Correct. I think probably the right term would be craft because there's there's a lot of skill, there is science, but there's also a lot of science that we haven't yet discovered. As an accomplished cheesemaker, we'll always pay close attention to the process and make adjustments as needed. And then kind of related to that, as I think about cheese making, how my maternal grandfather knew it compared to how I, I know it, over the years we've been able to harness technology to help us be more consistent. But that technology doesn't replace the eye of, of the cheesemaker. It doesn't replace paying attention to the process and making adjustments. 
what automation or technology does for us is it helps us be more consistent, but in itself, it doesn't make us better. It takes the cheesemaker to be to make the cheese good or to make good cheese. And kind of related to that as well is technology on the farm. Um, in the, I don't know, 30-some years that I've been making cheese, I'm just impressed on how much the quality of milk has improved during that time frame. And it's because we have hardworking family farms who are, who are really dedicated to producing high-quality milk. And they, too, are harnessing technology to help their operations become better, to make their milk be better. Exactly. And on the note of how things have shifted and changed and improved, there's obviously so many elements that go into making cheese. So we're going to focus on one of the beginning stages, which is starter bacteria. So can you explain what that is and the importance of it? Yes. So as cheesemakers in general, uh, there's a lot of different ways to make cheese. But um, when we think about cheddar or Parmesan, lots of cheeses, we are using starter bacteria, which ferment the lactose in the milk, which brings the pH down, uh, which if we think about the ancient art of cheese making, that was really important from a, a food preservation standpoint. Um, so we're, we're managing a biological process as cheesemakers. We also will add starters. The purpose isn't to convert lactose into lactic acid. They work down the line as the cheese is aging and they'll create some of the flavors that we we absolutely love in cheese because they're breaking down the proteins. It's a very interconnected process to partner with bacteria to make great cheese. I love the way you phrase that, partner with bacteria. Yes, and of course we want certain bacteria. We want the ones that create the flavors we want. Uh, There's plenty of bacteria out there that are safe to consume, but they don't make the flavors we want. And then, then there's the, the culprits out there that, from a food safety standpoint, we absolutely build our process around preventing their, their inclusion in our milk. Right. So with starter bacteria, how has this element developed or changed over time compared to, say, when your grandfather was using starters? Yes. So when my grandfather was making cheese, he did a process which was called mothering the culture. So he would have some culture, he would grow it in small batches, and then he would grow that again. You could think of it a little bit like a process of sourdough bread, right? You're keeping back some of your starter to make the next batch of starter. And at that point, he would not have known what strains were in his starter, and he probably did not have just one strain in his starter as well. If we compare that to what we do now, is uh, now we're, we're using defined strains where we, we know what that bacteria is. We're monitoring it to make sure that it, its performance doesn't change over time. Growing up, I'd hear stories about how uh, somebody's starter had failed and they'd come to, to George Hintz to get his starter. Um, and, you know, cheesemakers would help each other out. And we'll also enter contests and we'll compete really hard. And we, you know, we all want to win that contest. But when the contest is over, we're also genuinely happy for whoever did win. So it's a really neat community to be part of the Wisconsin cheesemaking scene. One thing that I imagine, say, your grandfather had to deal with was a lack of automation, like things when it comes to heat control or other processes in the cheesemaking stages. 
are those good basic building blocks that allow you to be more creative in the process down the road when you are developing cheese? Absolutely. Um, growing up, I would hear stories of pretty much how much my grandfather hated his wood-fired boiler because he had inconsistent steam control. So he'd be fighting that instead of focusing on, on cheese making. Today, we have very good control of our temperatures. And that's really important because as we work to create American originals, uh, cheeses that will make Wisconsin proud, we need to have the control so that if we invent this, this great cheese and it's just fantastic, but we have to be able to replicate it because each time a consumer comes and, and buys this piece of Wisconsin cheese, they want it to be the same goodness as it was last time. So automation really allows us to do that, but automation does not replace the skill and observation of, of a, a cheesemaker. If anything, does it make the challenge of standing out even more satisfying? So when we think about cheesemaking, it, it's an ancient art. I mean, it goes back millennials, right? So, and around the world, there's just thousands of different kinds of cheeses. So if, if we look at that and we're like, wow, we want to create American original. And that's, that's a really big focus at Sartori. We, we want to create American originals. Um, we'll look to anyone around the world for inspiration, but we don't want to copy somebody else's great cheese. We want to make our own. And and even something as common as a cheddar, we'll put our own signature on it. So if you just look at it from that standpoint, it, it is kind of kind of daunting to think about, well, we want to create something new that somebody else hasn't had. But what kind of grounds me on all that is the creativity process. What I find in being creative is I get very balanced on right brain and left brain activities. So part of me is like, okay, if I look at this process and how traditionally this process has been done, well, if I do what everybody else has done, I'm going to end up what everybody else already has. So how can I do it differently? And then the analytical part of me is looking at the data after we've made the cheese and, and made multiple vats of the cheese and understanding, well, if we make more acidity early in the process, what is the consequence later on in the finished product? Um, so, you know, as we talked earlier about falling in love with the process, I absolutely love this part, that freedom to be creative and then also the analytical opportunities that it provides for me. So, yeah, it's a daunting challenge to come up with pleasing original cheeses, yet collectively Wisconsin cheesemakers are, are up to the task. Pam Hodgson is a master cheesemaker at Sartori Cheese in Plymouth, Wisconsin. She'll be part of the upcoming Art of Cheese Festival in Madison, giving talks and presentations such as Science for Cheese Geeks. You can find out more information at wuwm.com. Coming up, we'll hear some of the best new local music in this month's Milwaukee Music Roundup. Keep listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. It's finally fall, a time for apple picking, hot chocolate, and as always, live music. 
Although the weather might be getting cooler, Milwaukee's music scene is always running hot. Matt Wilde is the co-founder of Milwaukee Record, and every month he releases a nearly exhaustive list of new music from local musicians, and he joins Lake Effect's Joy Powers with a sample of what he's been listening to for the Milwaukee Music Roundup. So we have a slate of incredibly interesting songs. We're starting off with a bit of a country or Americana song, I'm going to say. I I think the title of the song is very fitting with the vibe. Uh, This is going to be The Fatalist Blues by Buffalo Nichols. Buffalo Nichols, yes. The great Buffalo Nichols is back with a new record. Uh, The record is called The Fatalist. And Buffalo Nichols is kind of the... Uh, moniker of Carl Nichols, Milwaukee musician Carl Nichols. Now, Carl has been playing for years and years in Milwaukee. He's played in groups like Nickel and Rose over the years. And a couple of years ago, I believe in 2021, he put out his debut solo record as Buffalo Nichols. And that was released on uh, Fat Possum Records, which is a a very big label and a a really nice uh, get for for them and for Carl. And it was their uh, kind of first blues signing in a long, long time. And now Carl is back, Buffalo Nichols is back with The Fatalist. It's a follow-up to that record. And it's really, really fascinating what Carl is up to on this record. He talks a lot about updating the blues and how he feels like the blues as a genre had has been kind of like trapped in amber for a long time and hasn't been allowed to progress. And so what he's doing on this record is adding uh, quote-unquote new or quote-unquote modern touches, basically like, you know, keyboard beats and things like that, things that aren't really new. They've been around for decades and decades, but uh, aren't typically found in quote-unquote blues music. And he's doing this really organically. This doesn't feel gimmicky. This isn't just, you know, layering on something, quote unquote, new onto an old genre. I think he's doing it in a really organic way. And this feels like if the blues had, uh, like he says, been kind of allowed to progress, this is what it would sound like. So it's a very natural, very fascinating progression. And the song we're going to be listening to, The Fatalist Blues, uh, is a perfect example of that. Carl, I believe, uh, is on tour right now, kind of a world tour. He'll be back in Milwaukee in November. So until then, let's listen to Buffalo Nichols with The Fatalist Blues. If I had my way, I would turn my whole life around. I'd watch the sun come up and I would smile till it goes back down. Not the will that I lack Oh, it's the money you see If I had my way I would turn my whole life around If it were up to me I would fill my whole world with love I'd lay down my arms And be as gentle as a Buffalo Nichols. 
The next song we're going to look at, I'm not actually familiar with this group, um, but their sound is, I think, very fitting with the kind of dreamy alt-rock bands that have become really ubiquitous in the music scene. Absolutely. This uh, this group is called Cream Vellum, and uh, you're you're very right. This is kind of a lightly psychedelic dream pop kind of shoegaze sound that you do find a lot in Milwaukee. And Cream Vellum uh, formed around oh, 2019, 2018, something like that. And uh, I have to say, like, it's a band I've kind of slept on for the last few years. And sadly, this record that they just put out, which is called Whip Lush, is uh, kind of their first full LP. And it's also their last EP. They're kind of disbanding as they release this record, which I believe they had been sitting on for a year or so. And so they finally released uh, this new record. It's called Whiplush. And uh, the song we're going to be listening to is called Kind Omens. And yeah, it's just it's just really fantastic. And it makes me wish I would have been more kind of, or had this band more on my radar for the past few years. Uh, the singer for this group, her name is Elise McCardle. She does uh, really fascinating work uh, throughout town. She has kind of a solo project called Mirror of Light, which I believe we've talked about on this show before. Uh, she's fantastic here. The whole group is really fantastic. I'm sorry to see this band go. I'm sorry that I'm just kind of now uh, getting into them as they're leaving, but uh, better late than never, I guess. So uh, yeah, this is just a, a really lovely song here from uh, Cream Vellum. The song is called Kind Omens. Omens by Cream Vellum. Now uh, we're going to look at a song that to me is a real throwback. It feels very 90s, kind of like a, uh, well, this is probably a hat on a hat, but uh, like Moody Cranberries. Oh, I like that. Moody Cranberries. <laughs> that hadn't occurred to me. That uh, totally sums up, uh, yes, absolutely. Rose of the West. Now I believe we talked about, I talked about Rose of the West uh, maybe a few months ago when they had released uh, a new single from uh, this album that finally came out, but I've just been listening to this album so much lately, I had to include it here again. The uh, The name of the, the full record is called No Things Permanent, and Rose of the West kind of, uh, I, I gotta go with it, yeah, Moody Cranberries, I like that a lot, kind of this dark uh, electro pop, kind of dark dream pop group. Uh, fronted by a singer-songwriter. Her name is Gina Barrington. Uh, she has a fantastic voice. The whole band is fantastic here. It's just a three-piece. But uh, they're great. Uh, Rose of the West came on the scene a few years ago. They had a couple of their songs uh, featured on some Netflix series, so they had a lot of high-profile action there. And now they're back uh, with this second record. It is called No Things Permanent. The song we're going to be listening to, I just absolutely love this song. I really love the whole record. The song we're going to be listening to is called Hardcore. 
and it's just got some perfect kind of creepy Halloween-y season vibes to me, this kind of like gothy kind of uh, throwback sound. So uh, like I said, this is a record I've been listening to a lot lately, so I had to include it here. It is Rose of the West. Their new record is called No Things Permanent, and the song we're going to be listening to is called Hardcore. Hardcore by Rose of the West. All right, well, Matt Wild, thank you so much as always for joining us here on Lake Effect, sharing all of these songs, and uh, hopefully this spooky season will be—I don't know—spookier. Is that is that what we want? Let's go with spookier. scary season. Scary, yeah, scary spooky, creepy, <laughs> Halloweeny—all of that. Matt Wild is the co-founder of Milwaukee Record. Every month, he publishes his Milwaukee Music Roundup and joins Lake Effect's Joy Powers to talk about a few of those songs. You can find our previous Milwaukee Music Roundups at wuwm.com. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Joy Powers, Sam Woods, and Excret Nunez join me in producing Lake Effect each week with help from Robert Larry. Becky Mortensen is our executive producer. We also heard from Mayan Silver, Susan Benz, Chuck Kornbach, Eddie Morales, and Taryn Powell from the WUWM News Team this week. Jason Reedy is our studio engineer. Michelle Maternowski is our digital manager. Valeria Navarro-Viegas is our digital editor. Trapper Shep wrote our theme music. If you've missed any of Lake Effect this week, you can find all of our conversations at wuwm.com. If you'd like to take the show on the go, don't forget to download the Lake Effect podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Join us again on Monday at noon for a special edition of Lake Effect. We'll be exploring problems going on in Wisconsin jails, particularly the Milwaukee County Jail, where an investigation into practices and procedures is underway after there have been several deaths at the facility. We'll also tell you about an ongoing lockdown at another prison in Wisconsin. Please join us on Monday at noon for that. Thank you so much for joining us today, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.